It's time for the Weekly Pass Podcast with Bonnie Jill Afflin and Holly Huggins. Welcome back to the Weekly Pass. I'm Bonnie Jill Laughlin, joined with my co-host, Holly Huggins. We're very excited about our special guest. I'm looking forward to talking today, Herschel Walker, 14-year career in the NFL and USFL, which is a long time for running back, 1982 Heisman Trophy winner and considered the greatest college football players of all time, and more importantly, a Patriot. Herschel, thanks for joining us. Uh, You guys are very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Now, Herschel, I mean, first of all, how are you doing during this pandemic? And then with the breaking news with our president getting the COVID-19, what are your thoughts when you first heard that? Well, you know, I'm doing well, uh, you know, and it's tough. I think it's tough for everyone. And when I first heard the news, you know, I was very sad and I'm praying for our president, the first lady and all his administration. And and but I know he's such a strong, strong man at 74 years old. People are amazed at the condition he's in. So. I'm wishing him the very best, and I think we'll have our leader back soon, and he'll be back out there on the campaign trail uh, getting ready to become the uh, the 46th president of the United States. (laughs) Now, before we get into politics, I kind of want to talk about your career, Herschel, and going back to when you played football and ran track in high school, growing up in Georgia, and then after you graduated from high school, as a valedictorian, I might add, you played running back for the University of Georgia where you were a three-time All-American in football and track. What sport did you prefer better at the time, running track or playing football? Well, that's what was so weird. You know, a lot of people don't realize that I didn't really grow up as an athlete. You know, I, I learned football and track from reading books and different things like that. But if I had to pick a sport out, it'd probably be track. Uh, you know, people <laughs> were totally shocked by a guy my size could run as fast as I could run. And I've always told people, I say, you know, I've never read it in the Bible that just because you're big, you can't run fast. I think people put ideas in kids' heads that they can't do certain things, and kids start mm-hmm. believing in that. But I'm here to tell young kids, well, young men and women, you can do do whatever you want to do. If you're going to sacrifice, you're going to work at it and don't give up, you can do whatever you want to do. Right. That's right. Now, um, in 82, you won the Heisman as a junior as the only player in the NCAA history to finish in the top three in Heisman voting in all three of your collegiate seasons. Tell me what it was like to have those nominations. I mean, your freshman year, your sophomore year, um, up against Marcus Allen, uh, and then winning it your your junior year. Well, you know, it was very unusual because, you know, my freshman year, the year I was nominated as a freshman, I was, I got excited. And to be honest with everyone, I didn't know what the Heisman Trophy was. <laughs> because I never really followed football as a little kid. Uh-huh. And all I've ever known was to go out there and you play hard and, you know, you just do the best you can. And when they start talking about the Heisman Trophy, I got excited about it, figured maybe I'd win it because, you know, we had a very, very good team. And when I didn't win it my freshman and sophomore year, going into my junior year, I really felt kind of guilty that they uh, they gave it to me my, my junior year. And, and I told everyone because, you know, I get a chance to vote today. And in 1982, if I had voted, I probably would have voted for John Elway because John Elway meant more to Stanford than I meant to the University of Georgia. And uh, and that's the way I try to look at it when I'm casting my vote is what do the guy mean for that university at the time. And Georgia at that time had a great, very, very good team. Uh, Stanford was coming out of, uh, you know, they were, they they really went out and played well that year. And, and so I felt like I was a Susan Lucha at the Heisman Trophy. <laughs> And, you know, I didn't win it the first two years that they may have felt yeah. guilty and gave it to me my junior year. 
So, uh, but I do, uh, I thank him so much because, you know, the Heisman represents so much. It represents a class. And I think the 82 was a, was a good class of people. You talk about Eric Dixon and, you know, uh, you talk about John Elway, uh, yeah, a lot of great players in that, in that class there. Now, Herschel, in 1999, you were elected to the College Football Hall of Fame, and I consider you one of the greatest players still today, college football players. Growing up, you know, you said you weren't a big football fan. Did you ever think that one day you would be in the College Football Hall of Fame and be considered the greatest? Uh, not at all. You know, you, I don't think anyone can ever dream of something like that because uh, in South Georgia, in, in a small little town, that you never really think you ever get recognized for that much out there, but you know, it was strange because uh, I tell everyone that, you know, when you work hard and you put in a dedication, good things can happen. You know, uh, you know things are not going to always go your way, but you got to pick yourself up. And I've, I've done that over and over. I think everyone always look at all the glory, but they don't look at the whole story of that athlete. And, you know, I've had some, some down times, but I've always picked myself back up and kept going. And, and, uh, and I think because of that, that's what has helped me along the way. So I have a, a two-part question here for you. As you were growing up, I know you grew up with a lot of siblings. Who was your mentor growing up or the best example of leadership during your playing days? Sports growing up. The only sporting event I watched was WWE. Well, it, wasn't, it was NWA, which was professional wrestling <laughs> and stuff. And I don't know whether you call that a sport. I think I call it a sport. Yeah. And so I, I watched that. I knew, uh, I knew the Rock's father, Rocket Johnson and Tony Atlas and Thunderbolt Patterson and wrestling number one and two. And I never really watched sports, never watched football or basketball or anything like that. And what was interesting was, uh, you know, by watching those guys and going out working hard, when it came for me to have uh, somebody that I looked up to, it was my parents. I was very fortunate to have a mom and a dad, and you know, I was raised in a church. I always looked up to them, and I watched them go to work every day, work hard, and they would come home, and they took some time to go out and play with the kids. And, and I think that, that showed me a lot. It showed me that you got to work for what you're going to get. You don't complain. I never watched them complain not one time. And you do your job and you do it well. And, and that's why I tell kids today, I say, you know, I don't care if you're a trash collector, you be the best trash collector you can be. You know, uh, success to me is not money or cars or things like that. Success to me is when you lay your head on your pillow at night and sleep in peace. And, and that's what I try to do. And what would you say uh, is perhaps the best piece of advice that you've received this far in life, whether it's in sports or life in general? Well, you know, I think having a, uh, a foundation to fall back on, I think having some type of Christian belief, because you got to have that foundation, because I tell everyone, you know, you're going to get knocked down. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how much success you've had. You're going to have some failures in life, but you're going to have to pick yourself back up. You're going to have to keep going and be okay and know that it's okay to make a mistake. Everyone think that uh, making mistakes are bad. You know, it's not. Mistakes help you to be better as a person and never stay in the middle of the road. That's the same thing as I'm saying. Don't stand in the middle of the road. Take a direction. And if you're going in the wrong direction, turn around. So you can always turn around. That's, that's mean picking yourself back up. Because, you know, I, like I said, I've had more failures than I had successes. I think people always look at the success. But, you know, the, the failures were what made me the, the man I am today. I love that, Herschel. Now, you know, after college, you then went to kind of a different route by heading to the USFL. And uh, unlike the NFL at the time, they allowed athletes to turn professional after their junior season and then allowed you to choose where you wanted to play. And you end up signing with the New Jersey Generals in 1983, who at the time was owned by J. Walter Duncan and then sold to your buddy, 
President Donald Trump. Um, your experience there, had you made the right decision and your relationship with Donald Trump, how that started to expand there? Yeah, you know, I, I do think I made the right decision. What was so interesting about making that decision was almost the same way I did in college and deciding what college to go to. You know, I flipped the coin. Uh, I didn't know I wanted to go to the military. I thought I was cut mm -hmm. out to be a Marine. And, uh, you know, my mom told me if your mind and your heart is pure to Lord Jesus, it really don't matter about your decision, that God will make it right for you. And that's how I flipped the coin to decide whether to go to college, what college to go to. And when this USFL thing came on, I flipped the coin whether to stay in college or go to the USFL. And it came for me to go to the USFL. And I ended up going to the USFL. And as you said, I met the uh, fourth or fifth president of the United States. We became friends. Mm -hmm. And you know, not just casual friends, we became really, really good friends. And we, we talked a lot. Uh, you know, I, I did a lot of things with he and his family. He did a lot of things with me and my family. And and so uh, it's, it's interesting because uh, you never would have thought that a uh, a country boy from South Georgia would become friends with a brass New Yorker uh, <laughs> from New York. And uh, we did. And we've been friends ever since. Now, some don't remember are old enough to even remember the USFL and the great players that came from there that are in the NFL who are now in the Hall of Fame, Steve Young, Gary Zimmerman, Reggie White, and Jim Kelly. I mean, the USFL produced some great players, including yourself. Well, they did. And, and you and I tell people, if they look at the USFL, you'll be totally shocked at the players that they produced, the players that came out of the USFL. And, and I think people are absolutely amazed uh, at the athletes that came out of there. And when they came into the NFL, you know, that's when the NFL expanded into uh, a couple of new teams. And, and I think there's so many great athletes out there in the United States that, you know, it can, you can use a new league. I don't know if we can use the NFL, but I think it can use a feeder league to feed into the NFL. I think there are some college guys that, that, that leave early to go to pro ball that's not ready to go. NFL give them that opportunity, give them a, uh, I hate to say that, make them feel that they're ready to play in the NFL and they're not. Well, maybe they can have another league that can get them prepared, almost like a minor league in, in baseball, mm -hmm. because some guys are not mature enough. They're not mature enough because now you're stepping from being a uh, young teenager into being a man. And you also have to get out on your own. You have to live. You have to take care of family. And that's a totally different animal there. And I think uh, having a feeder league, uh, I think, can be great for the NFL. Now, when it comes to the NFL, you made a statement once that you said you didn't know if you wanted to play in the NFL unless it was for either the two New York teams or the Dallas Cowboys. And Cowboys drafted you in the fifth round in 85, and you were moved to fullback, and you shared the backfield duties with uh, none other than Tony Dorsett. And you guys were, I guess it was the second Heisman backfield tandem in NFL history. What an amazing duo there. What did you guys learn from each other? Well, you know, Tony and I, we were not just, uh, I was just not the fullback, but uh, Tony and I were roommates in training camp with another guy by the name of Todd Fowler. And when I got to Dallas, and, uh, and this was so interesting, and that's one reason I think the USFL played a big part in my life because, you know, uh, being at Georgia, people only felt that I can run the football. You know, that's all Georgia ever did. We never hardly ever passed the ball. When I got to the USFL, people saw that I can do a lot more than just run the football. I was able to catch. I was able to return kickoffs. I did so many different things. And when I first got to the Dallas Cowboys, you know, uh, Dallas had a great Tony Dorsett where they didn't need another. Well, you can always use running back, but they didn't need a running back of my caliber. But because of my talent, they took me in the fifth round. And then uh, Coach Landry used me in a lot of different positions, not just fullback. I played wide out, I played receiver. And a matter of fact, my first year with the Cowboys, I broke the Cowboys receiving record. And that was one thing 
thing that you think about the receivers that had came through the Cowboys at the mm-hmm. time. And I broke the Cowboys receiving record, and I think that's because of the USFL. People saw that I can catch the ball, that I can run routes, that I can return kickoffs. And and, uh, and playing with, in Dallas was absolutely incredible, playing with the likes of Tony Dorsett, Randy White, Ed Tutal Jones, Danny mm-hmm. White, and being coached on a great guy by the name of Tom Landry, I think one of the finest coaches ever to coach. And, you know, and, and, and I always tell people, I think I've been blessed to have great coaches, great teammates that uh, that's always kept me on a straight and narrow. You know, they kept me, they, 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 they were disciplined, they, they are very responsible, and, and, and I think that helps out a young kid when he's coming into the league. Well, me and Holly love you in a Cowboys uniform because we were both former Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. So we were there during your second stint, actually. Uh, but I want to brag on you a little bit, Herschel. Three seasons with the USFL, you rushed for 5,562 yards in the USFL career, then combined rushing number for USFL and NFL, 13,787 yards, which would place you fifth all time in the NFL's career rushing list. I mean, that is impressive. Well, you know, that's one thing I always tell people because they bring up the Hall, the Hall of Fame. And I said, guys, this was so interesting. And, and I started finding this out lately since everybody's bringing it to my attention. You know, when you just start, when you count the USFL and the NFL, my combined yards, I think I'm almost 5,000 yards above everybody in pro football. If you just count, count my combined yards in both leagues. But then when you just take away uh, my USFL yards, get and count my combined yards. I'm still in the top eight, I think, in the NFL. You are. And I said, that's what's so interesting. And people don't even know that because they uh, they uh, don't even stop to think about it because not only did I uh, grab a lot of yards as a, as a running back, but I also grabbed a lot of yards with catching the ball and also receiving mm-hmm. and kickoff return. Uh, so I always wanted to be a football player. That's one thing people don't know about me is, you know, when I started in high school, I played full, not full, but I could play linebacker and uh, running back. And I thought I was a decent uh, linebacker. I loved to hit, but I loved to play the game. That I always say I'm a great football player. I never said a great running back, but a great football player. And, and when the coaches were shocked that I wanted to run down on punt returns, I wanted to return kickoffs, I wanted to do, I wanted to be out on the field as much time as I could doing a lot of different things because I kept myself in shape and I was always able to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, looking back through your career, Herschel, could you name like one of your favorite teammates and maybe one of your favorite rivals during your playing days? Well, you know, I, I, I've had a lot of, uh, I think a lot of great teammates and it'd be hard to name one, but you know, you're talking about some people like Reggie White, Michael Irvin, uh, you know, uh, uh, Chris Dolman, uh, geez. I, and that's what's so funny. And I hate to leave Randall Cuttingham. Yeah, I hate to leave people out because those are guys that was like friends and you know uh, legendary players that I had an opportunity to play with. And, and that's what I tell the young kids out there: is guys, you know, you look at Herschel Walker coming from a small town in South Georgia. I got a chance to play with some legendary players, and and not only that, to travel around the world. And that tells you that dreams can come true. You know, mm-hmm. uh, as I said early on, you just got to sacrifice sometimes. You know, if you want to be a great student, you can't be going out at night and, and partying. If you want to make good grades, you just can't just be there as partying all the time. And if you want to be a good athlete, you can't be drinking. You can't be using drugs. You can't be doing mm-hmm. no thing. You have to sacrifice. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. 
everyone can't be an athlete, but be the very best you can be at whatever you're doing. And that's where I try to strive to tell people, I don't know if I was a great football player, but I tell people this, I can guarantee I was a great competitor. And I don't think there's anyone that's ever competed against Herschel Walker would not tell you that that's one guy that, I mean, you compete against him, you better bring more than your lunch because I'm not going to make it easy on you. I'm going to make you work. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to make people work hard. Now, Herschel, I know that you um, you had talked about maybe making an NFL comeback um, some years ago. If you could play for any football franchise today, who would that be and why? Well, you know, uh, it, it, it's tough. And I said, there's probably two teams right now. And, and well, now, but let me just go with one. I'll probably play for Minnesota. And let me tell you the reason why Minnesota is because, you know, when yeah, I got true. traded from Dallas to Minnesota, I think I got into a situation where it was the coaches against management. And I think the coaches felt that I was sort of uh, uh, to sort of toward management because they had no no uh, say in the trade. They didn't even know there was a trade happening. So when I got on the Minnesota team, I don't think the coaches liked me. I didn't play that much. I was just in and out of the game. I really didn't go out and play that much. And But the Minnesota people were so, so nice to me. The Minnesota people, and I always tell people, if I, if I ever run for president, I guarantee you I can carry the state of Minnesota. And because <laughs> I know people there in Minnesota so. were so nice, and I think I owe them something. And because, uh, you know, and I love, if I, if I went out to play again, I said, I'd go back and play in Minnesota so they can get a chance to see me play. You know, I left Minnesota, went to Philly, and had another incredible years there. And I just thought that I owe something to Minnesota because of the people there. Now, Herschel, one thing I thought that was fascinating um, in your career is that you competed in the 1992 Winter Olympics in France as a member of the U.S. bobsled team. I mean, how did this all come about? And as a patriot, it must have been something to represent your country and wear the red, white, and blue. Well, you know, it, it, it came about by a friend of mine by the name of Willie Galt, who's from Griffin, yeah. Georgia. We competed against each other in high school, and, and uh, Willie had a chance to go to the University of Tennessee, where we competed against each other there in the SEC. And then he ended up going to the Chicago Bears. Well, we were at the Superstars competing against each other again, and Willie happened to ask me about going up to Lake Placid to try for the bobsled team. And as I said early on, I'm a competitor. I'm like, yeah, I do it, I do it, whatever you want to do. And and never, ever, ever thought Willie Galt would ever call me about a bobsled. And once he called me about the bobsled team going to Lake Placid, I'm sitting there thinking, what the heck is a bobsled? You know, I'm from South Georgia. I've never, I've never been around <laughs> snow that much. I was in Minnesota, but I never knew what a yeah. bobsled was. But I felt I can go up to Minnesota, and uh, not Minnesota, but I can go up to Lake Placid and try it for the team, but really not try to make it because I wasn't too fond of cold weather. I wasn't going to try to make the team. But when I got up there, I think there was almost 1,400 people trying to try it for about 1,500, for 15 spots. Well, uh, most of the athletes there was not too nice to me. And it brought me back when I was a little boy because, you know, I was overweight. I used to have a speech impediment where kids used to bully me. They used to pick on me. So it brought me back to that point in my life. And as I told you, I can compete. And I said, the people here want to compete against Herschel Walker. They can see me. They can compete. Well, I ended up winning the push championship for the United States that day, which meant that I get a chance to go to uh, Altenburg, Germany, and do and push in the push championship for the world, which I ended up winning that. And that just goes to show you, as I said early on, that's one thing about me is I can compete. When I show up, people bring more than their lunch because I'm going to show up prepared. I'm going to show up ready to go. And, and I got a chance to compete with Brian Scheimer, who's from Naples, Florida, and myself competed for the United States for the bobsled team. And I've never been so proud 
than to see the United States come together. You know, when we were over for the World Cup, I mainly just saw bobsledders and the and the and the, uh, the lose team. I didn't really see the United States. But all of a sudden, when we got to Altenburg, uh, when we got to uh, France, uh, and I got a chance to see the United States come together, and I had never been so proud to see that that come together. And that's the reason we're the greatest country in the world. That's the reason I support this country, because no matter what is going on, we are the greatest country in the world. That's the reason a lot of people want to be here, because there's nothing like it. And I, I was so proud to get that opportunity. Amen. Now, Herschel, I love the, your versatility as an athlete, and I know you have some interest um, in the MMA. And that back in 2009, you were signed by Strikeforce, an MMA promotional company, to compete uh, in their heavyweight division, uh, and you had some success with that. What was that like? I absolutely loved it. Uh, a lot of people don't know when I was in college. You know, I, I've been studying martial arts for almost well today, but almost 40 something years. But you know, I studied martial arts when I was in college. Now, matter of fact, I used to play on Saturdays. I went to church Sunday morning, and I fought in Taekwondo tournaments Sunday afternoon. So I've been been in martial arts for such a long time, and when they put uh, rules and regulation in a lot of the martial arts fighting and made uh, made it like this, this strike to do it at my age. And but you know, I, I always tell people I'm I'm uh, 20. I've never gotten old. I never got past 25, so I stay right around that that uh, that age group. And so I started training. I started training to get ready, and people thought I wouldn't do it. And, and I got a chance to meet a guy by the name of Scott Coker and Bob Cook. They brought me out to California and did what they call a uh, a trial, where I had to fight five different guys in five different rounds and five different disciplines. Well, I ended up doing very well at it, and they then Scott Coker, and I, and I thank him every day because he said, Hershey, if you would go, promise to go to a training camp, I will get you a fight. And he would, he would run a strike force at the time. Well, I went out to uh, San Jose, California, to AKA, one of the best fight gyms in the world. I was there for about nine months. I trained uh, five days a week, well, almost six days a week, almost seven hours a day for uh, for nine months. And I ended up getting a fight, and I ended up doing well, and I stayed with it, got into a couple of other fights. And I've loved uh, uh, the MMA world ever since, and I and it, this is the honest truth. I, I said Scott Coker sort of saved my life. Because uh, you know, I thought that I was really prepared. Being a black belt, I was a fifth degree black belt in Taekwondo before I got a fight. But by Scott Coker telling me to go to a training camp, I learned so much more that I know if I went into that cage just knowing Taekwondo and what I at that time I would have totally been destroyed. Going to a fight gym that had Cain Velasquez, Daniel Cormier, Luke Rockhold, Josh Thompson, and all those true fighters, they 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 showed me how to fight. And I absolutely love that sport. I love it today, and I still train today, and I still will fight today. So that's a sport that uh, is, is a big part of my life right now. Speaking of training, you've always had this like kind of unorthodox training diet methods. I mean, I saw you two years ago at Super Bowl, and you're just ripped. You're jacked. I mean, is it true, Herschel? Like, you, you sleep five hours. That's what I read. You sleep five hours a night. You eat only one meal a day, which means skipping breakfast or lunch. And your daily regimen is 750 to 1500 push-ups and 2,000 sit-ups. I mean, are you still going through this routine? Is this true? Uh, is, that is partially true. Okay. Uh, I, I sleep probably about three and a half hours a oh. night. Oh. I, well, how do you I, do it? 
<laughs> yeah, I do about 1,500 push-ups, about 3,500 sit-ups every day. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've owned a, a, my own company, which is a food company. I, I'm the largest minority-owned food company in the United States. And people do ask, how do I do it? And I say, I don't know. I think God just loves Herschel Walker because I just do my job that I got to get done. Uh, you know, whatever it is, I just go out and get it done. I don't think about it. But I feel great. I'm, I'm as healthy as a, as a horse. Uh, you know, and, and, I, and as I tell people, you know, guys, you know, you just got to work at whatever you do. You know, people are not going to give you anything. I don't believe in this. Everything is free society. I don't believe everybody get a trophy. I've told people many times when a kid strikes out, I don't give him a ball for striking out because he start crying. What I want to do is take him to the batting cage. I want to teach him how to do it. I think that's one of our biggest problems is we always want to give people something rather than teaching them. You know, I believe in that philosophy. You don't you don't give someone a fish. You teach him to fish because I want him to have uh, longevity. I want to be him to have uh, he can do something on his own. And I think that's what makes him a better person. I want to take a, a whole different turn here and ask you, you've been such a leader, Herschel, with um, discussing and trying to really focus on destigmatizing mental health issues over the years. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Dak Prescott and the whole Skip Bayless situation. Um, what do you think about that? That situation. Well, I was I was upset with Skip Bayless. Uh, you know, I've known Skip for a long time. I was upset with him because you know I went through a mental health problem myself when I got out of football, and I never uh, I've never drank before in my life, never tasted beer, never had a drug, and I had an anger problem, which I didn't know where it was from, and it stemmed from uh, being bullied as a little kid. Well, I've taken that now and went went to a hospital and and helped overcome that, and I still work on it. And everyone has problems. And I think a stronger man or a stronger woman is a person that they would admit his problem and get it solved rather than to deal with it and be ashamed of it and hide it. Because when you're hiding it, you don't know where you, whether you're going to hurt yourself or hurt someone else. And for Skip Bayless to say that it was wrong, that it doesn't show leadership for Dak to come out to say that he had a, a depression problem. I thought Skip was totally wrong by that, you know, and, and you know, which is, you know, he, everyone has a right to their opinion. But I think sometimes if you don't know what you're talking about, you shouldn't even address it. You know, this is something I've been dealing with for a long time, trying to remove that stigma of mental health. I think people watch too much TV. They see so many movies where they take a guy that has a mental health and he's the evil person. He's the person that's doing all the wrong thing. And I think that's what we uh, look at it as. And, and I reckon that's what Skip Bayless was thinking that just because Dykes, he had depression, that he's not a leader. And I said, no, he's a leader because he said he got depression, but he's mm -hmm. overcome that. And now he's leading men. He's not a person that hiding whatever problems he got that Skip may be doing. And, and I don't know what it is or whatever is going on in his life, but I think Dak was a great leader to admit his problem. Yeah, now Herschel, I want to get you know towards the end of our interview, talk about politics. Um, you know, what did you think when you watched? There's been a lot of scrutiny on both sides. Uh, but when you, what were your initial thoughts after you watched those debates uh, last uh, Tuesday? Well, you know, it, it, it was it was interesting. It was very very interesting. It was very very tough to watch at a point, and it was tough to watch because uh, the president has done so much, and I think he was really really fired up because they have not given this this president here any credit at all ever since he got into office. Mm -hmm. Everyone has said things that, you know, if they had said that years ago against Obama, they would have been arrested. You know, some of the things they have said against this president, we've just let it go. Even, and you know, they, they talked about the president interrupting uh, uh, Vice President Biden. But I, I asked a statement, I said, what if uh, someone had called President Obama stupid or a clown or told him to shut up? What would have happened? I think people would have had a fit, oh, but yet we just let it go and we never even addressed that. We never even talked about it. 
and stuff. And, and, and then, you know, and so I said it was very, very tough. But, you know, what this president here has done, and that's what I tell people, guys, we don't want to look at uh, his tweets. We don't want to look at uh, all the things that you think he does. Look at what he actually has done. And I think because of that, people try to erase that by bringing up all this other stuff. But look at what this guy has done. And I just said, look at his record. And I, I said a prime example. And I said, this closes everything. I said, there's been three different countries nominated this president here as a Nobel Peace Prize. They don't have a dog in this fight. They're not Republican. They're not Democratic. They're looking at what this guy has done for the world. Well, why are we not looking at what he's done for America? And people, if they just stop to look at it, you know, and, and you know, sometimes you would tell the African-American guys, this guy, he was one that helped to fund the historical black colleges. We hear that all the time. They may not understand that. And what I'm saying is, you know, for years, this people, the African black college, the historical black college used to come to Washington to ask for money to continue to go on. He didn't understand that. Well, he helped to fund them, but they don't have to do that anymore. Some of the president in the past could have done that. Our black president that we had a couple of years ago could have done that, but he didn't do it. Well, this president right here helped to, helped to you know, do everyone know and people say, oh, I didn't get no extra money in my pocket. I said, guys, no, on an average, every household in America income went up at, at least over $2,000. People, oh, I didn't, well, well, no, it did in an app. You know, everyone think that this president is supposed to call every individual person in the United States to talk to them. But he's doing it for America. And I said, that's what make America great again. You know, this president here, this year, this year Trump, I hate to use that word, Trump a lot of things. I worked as a, with my mom when I was uh, in the summer as a clothing factory where we used to make jeans and pants for different companies like Sears and all that. Well, all of a sudden, uh, when I went off to college, my mom, um, didn't have that job anymore. And I asked her about it. She's oh, that job is going to, to China. Now China is doing that now. So a lot of these manufactured jobs went to China. They were gone. That's the reason people didn't have the jobs. Well, it's interesting because people don't seem to understand this president here is getting these manufacturing jobs back here in the United States by saying, okay, China, if you want those jobs, you're going to pay a tariff on it. If you want to, we're going to make this an even playing field. That's what he said. And then I hear, and not to be mean, I hear the same Democratic people now saying, oh, that's what we're doing. We build back better. Well, what are you building back? You have 47 years to do that, and it wasn't done. So don't don't tell me this here right now because and it you know, don't trick us right now by telling us what politician has told us for years. You know, you always hear a politician tell you what he's going to do, but nothing ever get done. Well, you cannot tell me what this president here has said that he was going to do that he's not done because he's tried to do everything he's, he said that he was going to do, even though the people in the United States has fought against. They try to put every obstacle they can in his way, but he's bulldozed his way through to try to get done what he said he's going to do. And I said, guys, how can you not believe in that? And I said, I've known this man for over 37 years. I've eaten at his house. He's eaten at my house. His kids, I know better than anything. So when I hear someone say something about his kids, I take offense to it because, wait a minute, I was with them and they was growing up. I knew, I know how they are. I know that they go to work, that they work their tails off. I know they go out and get that education. So don't tell me something I don't know. And I know this guy's not a racist because he's eating my food. I've eaten his food. He's invited <laughs> me to his house. He's eating me like that. So it's like, guys, I know him. And I said, so you can say those words all you want to say, but I know him. And, and, and this was interesting. And I'm and I, then I closed my mouth about it. Is there are so many other African-Americans that I know that I've seen them over the years with this president 
president. And today I see them say that he's a racist. Well, it's kind of interesting mm-hmm. because if you think about it and if people take, go back and look, and that's what I always tell people, don't take it from Herschel Walker. Look it up yourself. Everything I tell people is you can go look it up and you can say that I'm telling the truth. Well, this president was given an award for the things he was doing for African-Americans before he was president by Jesse Jackson. He was given an award for what he was doing for the African-American community. And he was not even the president at that time. So that's what's so interesting if people just stop for a moment and I said, go look this up yourself. You can look up all this yourself. You don't have to take it from me. Go look up this. You can go look up Biden record of four to seven years. You can go look up uh, Senator Harris record. And that's another thing. I said, guys, how many African-American we have in Congress today? Have you heard them bring up any laws to change equality? Have you heard them bring up social justice, any laws to change social justice? Why is it now they are preaching and holding that flag up like that's what they want? If that's what they have been wanting, why have they not brought it up into Congress today to solve it? They've not one time have brought it up except today. And that's why I say, guys, don't let them tell you something. And all of a sudden, now they get what they want, and then you're left behind again. And I know you won't be left behind this president right here because he's bringing you to the forefront. Herschel, I, I love how you speak about your longtime relationship with Donald Trump and, and how I'm sure a majority of the people don't realize that it go your relationship goes with him way back before he was president, you know, and continues on to today. I have to ask you, um, and you briefly touched on it a little bit, but um, with all the civil unrest that's going on in America today, Daniel Cameron, I know you we're probably with him at the convention not long ago uh, with the Breonna Taylor things that are going on. And then today, Daniel Cameron having to release the grand jury transcripts. What are your thoughts with that whole situation? Well, you know, it is very sad. Let me tell you the reason it's sad to me. You have lawyers that seem to only come around when it's, uh, when it's uh, instead of being uh, proactive, they become reactive. And what I mean by that, why do they come around after something happened? Why don't they come around before something happened by saying, you know, young men, you know, if a police ask you to cooperate, let's cooperate with them. And if you go to jail unjustly, let us help to get you out. Let's not wait till you decide not to cooperate and then something happened and either you or the policeman get killed and now I show up to see if something going on because we can't be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. That seemed to be what we want to do right now. We want to do the judge, the jury, and the executioner now because we ain't going to believe in our justice system. We have a justice system in place. Now, if you don't like that justice system, what we need to do is go to Washington, and I've said I go with you, and get those people who we think that our African-American people there and all the people there that have been talking about this social justice, get them to agree to make a law to change the laws that we have in place. We don't do it by... We becoming everything now. We're going to judge what they said. We don't like what we get, so we're going to not want to change it. And I'm not saying I don't know the whole case, but there's two sides to every story. And I can say this, and I can promise you this right here. The the police, 99.999% of them don't, are not bad people. They want to go mm-hmm. home. Everybody else want to go home. They're not bad people. So let's not put it all on them. But why do they only show up when there's something going on? And I, I said, guys, let's tell our and let's tell our people, or not just black people, not just brown people, let's tell America, let's cooperate. But why don't we start a program or a, a thing where it's like you you saw Senator Harris raising money to get people out of jail? Why don't we raise money that we want to start a program that we're gonna want everyone to cooperate with the police? 
and then if they go to the police office and it's been unjustly, then we go and try to get them out. Let's raise money to do that so we keep everybody safe. Let's not just raise money to get people out of jail that's breaking people's stuff, that's tearing into buildings, that's doing things that hurting people, that's shooting people because you're, you're, you're paying to get them out of jail. You know, what are we doing here? What society have we, we become that we thinking that destroying someone's business, destroying someone's lives is something that's good? That's not America. That's not where we grew up in. Why do we want to become a society that everyone is leaving to come here to be a get away from? Why do we want to become that? Yeah, very well said. Herschel, you had a very electrifying speech at the 2020 RNC and you opened a lot of eyes and really made people listen, even from the other side. I mean, how has your life changed since being so outspoken and supporting President Trump? And I mean, have you lost any friends? And I mean, I think you probably agree it's better to speak out on how you feel than be quiet. Well, it, it wasn't just speaking out. My, my thing was, guys, I said, I'm going to tell the truth. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I saw what was going on. And I said, if Herschel, and if Donald Trump didn't ask me to speak out. No one at his uh, on his team asked me to speak out. I wasn't paid to speak out. My thing was I saw stuff that wasn't true, and I said, I need to let the American people know the truth. And I say the things I say is not stuff I, I'm coming up with. It's stuff you can look up yourself. And I said, I want to tell people the truth and let you decide. We we right now got one of the biggest decisions in our life in voting for who we think should run this country. And I said, we want the right person in, in, in order. Well, when I saw at one time, I happen to be just Googling stuff late at night since I don't sleep. I saw someone <laughs> holding a BLM sign up, burning the cross, burning a holy Bible, and then burning the United States flag. Oh, and I said, no, 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 yeah. no, no. That's that you. That's no. Though I didn't grow up in in this in the United States to have that. Mm-hmm. Even though you may have a right to your your speech, but how can you burn someone's religion and you think that is okay because you're upset? You know that's not the country I grew up in. That's not the country I want to be a part of. You know, you do have the right to do whatever you want to do, but let's be honest here. That is not your right to do that and to go out and destroy someone's property and you don't be protected. Those people are not protected by these Democratic governors, these Democratic mayors, but yet they do have an oath that they went to office that they would protect the Constitution of the United States foreign and domestic, where they're not protecting their citizens. Well, I'm just saying, guys, what do we want? We need to decide who we want to put in office and not just vote for the president, but you got to vote for your local leaders as well. You know, if you got these Democratic leaders that are doing that, you got to vote them out. You got to get rid of them. Why do you want to have a leader that's going to be out there letting you get hurt, letting you get harmed, letting your business get destroyed? These are people's livelihood that they work for and they, they work for all their life. And now they lost their business and people think it's OK. But that's not okay. Yeah, yeah I, I love your passion, you know, with, with that whole situation. Have Would you ever consider running for a political office, whether it's Congress, Senate? Well, you know, people have been asking me that for years to do that. And, and I've always said, no, I, that's not something I want to do. And, and the reason I don't want to do it is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost like this president here. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to work my tail off to get it done. And, you know, and I would say this here, you get to Washington and you see the people in Washington right now, you see the people in Washington right now, you know, they're not out trying to fight for America. They're out trying to just fight against this president. And it's a political thing. You know, right now you're talking about all the stuff they could be doing for this country and they're not doing it. You know, it'll make me angry. You know, I get angry. I said, you know, you have people that right now going through this pandemic. They're worrying about a roof over their head. They're worrying about keeping food on their table. You know, they they keep their, their rent paid. And yet you can't get a stimulus bill passed because 
and I don't want to say what party is doing it, but you have one party that's thinking about all this other stuff rather than just getting uh, money so people can pay their rent or getting money that people can put food on their table. You know, that's what is sad to me that you mean to say you can't even get that done, but yet you want to talk about all this other stuff. But right now, this is a pandemic that's going on, but you can't even worry about the American people to help them to pay their rent or to help them to put food on their table because this is so political that that's what you care about. I thought you're supposed to care about America. I thought you're supposed to care about the people. Well, I'm 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 just telling people that uh, a lot of people in Washington don't seem to be caring about the people. You know, I was upset because you you see what people talk about police reform, police reform, police reform. Well, Tim Scott came to Washington with a police reform bill. He couldn't even get the Democratic people to even come to approach him to even discuss it. Whether the bill was a fair bill, whether it was a right bill, it was something to start talking about. And yet you didn't even want to discuss it. But yet I see all these signs saying police reform or uh, defunding, which is a terrible idea. I don't know who came up with that. Mm -hmm. But then police reform, Tim Scott is bringing a bill to the table that no one even want to discuss right now. So is that political? People are dying on the streets because of that. Well, they don't seem to care. People are starving on the street. Their business is being destroyed. You know, they don't seem to care about that. Well, what are you supposed to do in office? Why were you elected to come to office if that's not what you care about? Yeah. Well, Hersho, powerful stuff. I mean, Holly and I would vote for you. you- <laughs> well, thank you. You know, Holly and I, Holly and I both come from military families. And as a cop's daughter, I appreciate you stepping up and supporting. Couldn't thank you enough for coming on. And uh, we hopefully have you on again. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, all. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. You're welcome now. God bless. Stay well. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Weekly Pass. I'm Bonnie Jill Laughlin. And I'm Holly Huggins. See ya. Bye-bye.